You are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast, the podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to part two of the Tasmanian Perspective Special of Post Growth Australia podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bayless. Last episode, I spoke to Tanya Brooks, who is based in the fertile northwest coast of the Holiday Isle. For this episode, I travelled down to the Huon Valley, a picturesque apple growing region just around the mountain from Hobart, to talk to Michael Stas. Michael and I may share a similar first name, but we definitely don't share a capacity for carpentry skills or indeed a left-brained cranium capacity. I visited Mike on site on his self-built eco-home and was very impressed by how successful that he and his wife have built a self-contained eco-house that is not only self-sufficient for energy, but also very well insulated against the notoriously cold Tasmanian winters, as well as the less known but often brutal summers, such as the 34 degree day in which I visited Mike back in February. Not only did I visit Mike on a hot day, it was also the day that Facebook went down, along with the social media presence of many Australian organisations and groups, some of which I manage. So there was a whiff of the apocalypse in the air that day, a reminder that the system that we take for granted is built on fragile and precarious foundations. Mike is one of those people who practices what he preaches in terms of living the degrowth life. He is also very on the pulse when it comes to the science of limits of growth and environmentalism and operates the Damn the Matrix blog. So we mix practice with theory during this interview and touch on mixing activism with politics as Mike looks back on his former life in running as a Greens candidate. To say that Mike is critical of the current growth-based system and has some pessimism around our future trajectory is quite the understatement (laughs) and I provide a health warning that we go down the rabbit hole in this episode to talk about some fairly serious stuff. Maybe don't venture onwards if you're feeling particularly buoyed today that electric cars are going to save us. Professor Ian Lowe was mentioned during my talk with Mike, so I include a sound excerpt of a video interview that I did with Ian a couple of years ago. Ian Lowe is a patron of Sustainable Population Australia who proudly support this podcast, so I thought it would be a great opportunity to lead this episode with some of Ian's wisdom. At the end of the interview, I'll play a track from uh, Perth band Hatersburg called Epiprimate. Uh, Hatesburg were actually a band of friends of mine who produced apocalyptic soundscapes and ran Perth's Darkwave Festival for a few years back in the day. Sadly, they are no longer an entity, but have kindly allowed me to play this track. I was looking for the perfect opportunity to play Epiprimate, and I believe it is the perfect end to my conversation uh, with some of the heavier conversations that I have with Mike Stas. I decided to join what was then Australians for an Ecologically Sustainable Population and which has since morphed into Sustainable Population Australia because of my concern about the impact of the human population of Australia on our natural systems. My original formal training was in physics and I suppose I'm proud of the fact that I've used my background in physics 
to engage with the big problems facing humanity, uh, our impacts on natural systems. Probably we should have every night information about the state of the natural environment and once a year check up on minor things like the price of copper or the state of the Hong Kong share market. So I'm proud to have been involved in producing that first national report on the state of the environment and probably a bit depressed that uh, more than 20 years later there's still been very little concerted political action to address the serious problems that we identified in that report. While the current growth trajectory leads inevitably to collapse, uh, none of those trends is inevitable. Um, I think those of us who understand the problems about the unsustainability of the current growth trajectory have a moral responsibility to be trying to deflect the trajectory of development. The reason population is a big issue is that all of the forces that are contributing to the degradation of natural systems are more or less directly proportional to population. If there are more people, there are more impacts. So I've argued that it's irresponsible to be on a trajectory of population increasing without limit. It seems to me that in a rational world we would have a, a long-term goal of stabilising the population at a level that could be sustainably supported. But without solving the population problem, there is no possibility even in principle of getting back into balance with natural systems. I'm sometimes asked how you can rationally argue for reducing the migrant intake without it appearing to be cloaking a racist agenda of wanting to keep particular people out. And I think it's important to emphasise that the environmental issues and the infrastructure issues are not affected by the racial background, uh, the ethnicity, uh, the religious views, the sexual orientation of the people who come to Australia. They're only influenced by the numbers. Uh, Australians are destroying the environment and it's reasonable to criticise the scale of the migrant intake, but there's no reason to believe that uh, more damage is done by Pakistanis or Filipinos coming to Australia than by uh, Australians who were born here. And I believe very strongly in a non-discriminatory immigration policy. It's been politically convenient to demonise the small number who are arriving by boat to distract attention from the fact that much larger numbers are coming here under government approved programs. Uh, so governments can at the same time claim to be in strong control of our borders um, while simultaneously praising their increasing of the level of the economy by allowing much larger numbers of people to arrive by aircraft and uh, drive up house prices. I suppose what's interesting is that in the last 10 years there have been a small number of politicians like Kelvin Thompson in Victoria, a uh, small number of um, people in the business community like Dick Smith uh, who are concerned about population and have, been, have had the courage to speak up publicly about it. I think the most concrete achievement of SPAR is to have at least 
some politicians and public figures now prepared to talk about population because when I was young nobody questioned the assertion that a rapidly increasing population is good for everybody and uh, that is now being openly questioned and that can only be good. Uh, politicians are always looking for simple answers to complex questions, simple answer like grow the population and it's, it's the wrong answer to the complex question of how can we achieve a better future for Australia. And I think uh, SPA has succeeded in getting that issue of infrastructure and the real measurable cost of population increase on the agenda. Uh, it hasn't yet succeeded in getting politicians to take meaningful action but in the final analysis, politicians can only for so long defy the community mood. And uh, I believe it will become increasingly untenable for politicians to defy the increasing public awareness that there is a real cost to the rate of population increase that they've been cheerfully approving. Probably in the distant future, when the population has been stabilised either by conscious action or by forces we can't control, people will look back in puzzlement and wonder about were people really so stupid that they didn't think we needed to control the population, that they thought that it would take care of itself. I believe that being a patron of SPA gives me a responsibility to assist them in keeping the issue of population on the national agenda without there being some countervailing pressure, politicians are constantly being urged by land speculators, by developers, by the retail trade, all of whom donate generously to political parties, to adopt an irresponsible policy of unlimited growth in population. And that can only end in tears before bedtime. I'm sitting here in the Huon Valley with Michael Stas. How are you, Michael? Oh, very well, thank you. Give us a little bit of a description about yourself. It's an open-ended question, um, what you're passionate about, um, some of your highlights in your life. Mm, well, I've reached the age where I've done a lot of things. <laughs> and you know, and everything that I've, that I've done so far, I consider to be learning experiences. And I stayed in the public service for about 10 years, principally so I could cash in on my superannuation and my long service leave and go overseas because I had decided to become a professional photographer. And then I worked as a photographer in England. And when we came back to Australia, I, start, I set up a photographic studio until we had the recession we had to have. Well, it destroyed my clientele. And as a result, it destroyed me as well. So I had to give it all up. I guess it was my midlife crisis. I was, I was 42 when, when I stopped working uh, in photography and in actual fact that's, that's when I retired because I have literally not worked for wages since I was 42, which I think is my proudest conviction as far as degrowth is concerned because I, I feel that working for money is the problem with, with society. My, my wife's a nurse, so she, she kept working. But we lived on the smell of an oily rag 
as they say. Um, Glenda worked for maybe two or three days a week for years, and and we also had child endowment that we were getting from having the twins, and that's what we lived on. So you know we've been frugal for a very long time because I turned 42 27 years ago. Then in the 1990s I met my mate Bruce Teakle, and he introduced me to things like sawmilling and renewable energy because he lives on solar power and most importantly probably energy efficient house design um, which was all part of the renewable energy technology course that I did in the 1990s. I, I learned about designing and installing and all that stuff of you know, solar panels mostly a bit, a bit about wind but wind is not a big deal in Australia certainly not in Queensland where, where I originally came from but solar power obviously in Queensland is, is a big deal and back then, the only, the only solar power that was actually being used was all off-grid. Um, grid tide was only just coming in. So what I really learned in those days was about living off the grid. You know, we built uh, a 10-star energy-efficient house, which is, which is where I think technology should be going rather than renewables. Uh, because you can save so much energy if you do things properly. Would you like to give a quick tour of um, your plot and household that you do have here in the Huon Valley? You know, how that exemplifies some of the permaculture and um, degrowth and off-grid principles. I know there's probably a lot to talk about, mm. but um, you can talk about some of your favourite features <laughs> in a couple of minutes. Well, we... When I started looking for real estate in Tasmania, I had three criteria, three main criteria. One was, one was that it had to be facing north, so that we could garner as much solar power as possible. It had to have water, and it had to have reasonable soil. Because in Queensland, we had land that had fairly poor soil, and it took me 10 years to build it up to the stage where we could grow. I had to build a house as well, because... because Every time I've done this now, I've built a house. And I found this place thinking that it had much better soil than the soil we had in Queensland. But as it turns out, it's pretty much the same. Soil is critical, as far as I'm concerned, because we're losing soil on this planet at an amazing rate. I did a small farm planning course here. And one of the, one of the most important things that I learned from doing that course is that soil in Tasmania is, is graded from one to seven. So grade one soil is so good you could eat it. Grade seven soil is not even good enough to grow gum trees on. And we're smack bang in the middle at four. And it's one of the reasons why this land is, is uh, zoned significant agricultural land by the authorities in Tasmania. The one thing that I've discovered is that grades one, two, and three in Tasmania only represent something like 6% of all the farmland in Tasmania. The grade four soil that we have here represents 20, is represented by 24% of Tasmanian farmland and that means that 72% of Tasmanian farmland is ordinary to crap and some of that stuff you literally cannot do anything on it you can't even graze it some of it that really shocked me actually because I thought I had really good soil here but in actual fact what I ended up with was really good pasture so here we've got goats cows and sheep and lots of chickens and ducks all these animals eat grass, and we've got lots of that. In fact, grass is the single biggest crop in this whole area. And so 
even though you look at all these rolling green hills and you think, oh, really fertile soil, not the case. About all that can grow here is grass, and then of course apples. Uh, we've got two and a half acres of apples, we've got a thousand apple trees here, and things like cherries, a lot of farmers are switching from apples to cherries, and, and berries too, so there's a few strawberries. Plenty of acid in the soil then. Yeah, but the soil is really acid, and it's not really that fertile, because to grow apples, for, in for instance, love acid soil. So do cherries. In fact, most fruit, like, like citrus, they love acid soil. Tomatoes, actually, like acid soil. Tomatoes grow, or would grow really well here, except for the fact that it's a bit too cold. And so we've, we've had like really varying seasons when it comes to, tom to tomatoes. But as soon as you want to grow anything else, you really have to improve the soil. Now, I've set up a, a quarter acre market garden behind the house. And just for that quarter acre, I reckon we've easily spent $6,000 to improve the soil. And it's much better than it used to be. But... It's still not there. It's so still... you need to sell a lot of lettuce to <laughs> well recoup that cost back. Or... Oh, absolutely. Um, and that's why there's hardly anyone's doing market gardening in this part. Most of the vegetables grown in Tasmania are grown up north in, in that uh, class one, two, and three soil, which represents 6% of all the farmland. Now, one thing I did want to say um, about this house is we're recording this interview purely on your off-grid solar energy which is good for a hot day so this is um, it works better on a cold day you know <laughs> it's not the heat that makes the solar panels produce power it's the light <laughs> if you had this much sun and the temperature was 10 degrees cooler we'd actually make more well there, there, there we go so if we're recording on a cooler day um, would be sequestering even more carbon than we are now so i i want to say <laughs> <laughs> that this is a carbon negative interview don't, don't mind all the embedded energy that made the mixing desk and the laptop in the first place and, and all the solar gear <laughs> but despite that um i've uh, read your blog and you don't think that renewables will save us and renewable energy certainly has its place so you know we we use it here to run the house and we pump water with it and, and on extraordinary days like this, when we have clear blue skies all day long and the days are still long, um, I actually heat our water up. Our, our hot water is normally, like in winter, it's totally made with the wood stove. But when it's this warm, I don't, I don't want to turn the stove on and make it even hotter. Uh, plus, uh, I think burning wood, there's only so much of that you can do before it starts to become a little bit unsustainable. So I'm... What I'm doing now is something that I never ever thought that I would do before I started doing it. And that's I'm putting the power out of the batteries, running a 2.4 kilowatt booster in our hot water system uh, instead of running the stove. And it only has to run for between two and three hours. And we have hot water so long as the sun's out. And the, the, now the problem with all renewables is intermittency and also seasonal intermittency. So the difference between summer and winter is huge. Just two days ago, we had what looked like a clear blue sky like this, and I was running the booster on our hot water system, and, and I wasn't watching, because I was busy, I was building sh complicated shelving in one of the bedrooms, and I didn't realize that this huge cloud came over and blocked the sun, because I just didn't notice it. 
until the power went out. I thought, what's going on? <laughs> and um, then I realised, oh, it's really dark, cloudy. Because see, human eyes have irises, and when it gets dark, your eyes open up and it compensates for the for the lack of light. But photovoltaic panels haven't got irises. If it's dark, it's dark, and that's all there is to it. The electric booster on our hot water system had dropped the voltage in the batteries to the threshold level where the inverter said, no, nah, that's it, spit the dummy, and it just turned off, so we had no power. Not an issue uh, at this stage, because when I realised that I just turned the booster off, and then the sun came back out again, by dark, you know, the batteries were fully charged again. But the thing you have to understand is that if you're trying to run complex civilization where industry and commerce requires power 24-7 and the clouds come over and the power goes out and then everyone stops working until the sun comes back out again when the clouds go on, um, you know, it, it doesn't work like that. There's a big difference bet between being grid-tied and being off the grid. So we spent about 10 years in Queensland tied to the grid and for years, I was raving on my blog about oh, how great it was because you know, our, our house was so energy efficient in Queensland that we were making $2,000 a year profit from our solar power. We were selling it to the grid and it paid for the rates. And, you know, so we, you know, we really didn't need much money at all to, um, to live on. But what being tied to the grid completely hides is this intermittency. So if you've got a, a, a cloudy day, you don't even notice it because the grid's there. Everything in your house keeps going because you're pulling it out of the grid. The next day the sun comes out and you're pushing out like five times as much as what you need and it completely negates all the power that you took out the day before and it was cloudy. Then the other thing that happens is that in winter, the days are a lot shorter and it's the wet season. So it rains a lot, a lot of clouds. And I can tell you now that we, here in winter, we probably only get one-fifth or even one-sixth of the energy that we get in summer. Our system is designed so that it can just about run all, all winter. But to do that, we have to over-deploy. So we have to over-install um, to run on in winter, and that causes all this energy to just go to waste in summer. And, and you know we're very scungy on energy. We, we only need two kilowatt hours a day. Uh, the average Australian house needs 30. Wow. And, and, and the most that we ever get here, uh, on a, like on a really sunny day like today, we'll get 12. So does that come down to the fact that you're well insulated? Or oh, yeah, well, the house, it's a passive solar house, so we, we don't need any heating at all. Mm. Um, it's got to be really, really cold outside before the temperature in here drops to not below 19 degrees. Um, you know, we had snow here, and it had been forecast. And when I got up, and, uh, and I was running around, running around the house with nothing on. And, and then all of a sudden, this, this fog came in and it started snowing. And I yelled out to my wife, it's, it's snowing, it's snowing. It's like, I got all, so I got dressed and went outside with my camera and took photos of the snow. But that, that's the difference. Often, you know, you, you, you forget. So it's so warm in here that you go outside and you think, geez, it's cold out there, you know. <laughs> and you come back in, stick a couple of jumpers on, and you go back out again. But... It's not unusual for the house to be 10, 12, 13 degrees warmer inside than outside. Mm. Not in summer, though, I hope. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, the opposite happens in summer. What I find really challenging, actually, about designing passive solar in Tasmania is that it's much harder than in Queensland. Because in Queensland, it's, there's, a, there's a line, you know, like it's hot and then it's cold. But here, it can be hot or cold anytime. So, for instance, this, 
this summer we've had a, like I said, we've had a really cool summer. We've had temperatures run go down to four degrees, and that's probably the coldest summer I've experienced in you know, in the five or five and a bit years that I've been here. But five degrees, four to four degrees is really cold. It usually doesn't drop much below ten. If it's four degrees, in like in winter when it's four degrees, you want the sun to come in to heat your house up. And and the, the way you design how far in the sun comes in is by how wide you make the eaves on the house. And I really, when I design the house, I really struggle. Like, how wide do I make the eaves? Look, because it's in summer in Queensland, the house I designed in in Koran, in summer the sun never ever came into the house because of the way I designed it. And yet in winter it came right in and heated the house up nicely. But here at this time of the year, it can be like it's going to be thirty-three or something tomorrow, and and the sun's coming in. I can't stop it. Well, we, we decide we're going to have to put curtains across these doors to stop the sun coming in because when the sun comes into the house, it heats it up and it's already warm. So, yeah, it was a real design struggle, that one. Now, um, you've touched a couple of times on um, being in Queensland before here. Now, in my travels, uh, it's been evident that you're not the first mainlander to live in Tasmania recently I think there might be one or two other people <laughs> do you want to just uh, touch into um, uh, what was your decision in moving into uh, Tasmania from the mainland okay well I was born in Europe I'm definitely not a hot weather person and you can put up with stuff when you're young you know like when I was when I was 20 I used to drive an open sports car in the sun and I didn't think twice about that I don't know how I did it, but anyway. Um, and as I got older and older, and obviously this climate was changing, it's, de it's definitely gotten hotter. You know, six years ago in Queensland, we ran out of water. It got really dry. The, the, the last summer we were there, it was over 30 degrees every day for six months. Wow. Oh, it was incredible. It was really, really hot. Everyone was saying it's never been this hot before. It's never been this hot before. I remember being in Nambour a couple of years ago in the middle of July and it was about 30 degrees. So. Wow, really? So we sold our house in Queensland and I moved down here. And I remember thinking, I was looking at the weather all the time on, on, on news on TV and, you know, and I'd say, Hobart, maximum 11 degrees. But, you know, in the end, 11 degrees is a fantastic temperature for working. That's that's the big difference. When I was in Queensland, I'd have six showers a day. I've always said um, anyone who's feeling too cold just needs to run faster and longer. <laughs> just put more clothes on. Whereas, whereas in, if, if it's 35 and you can't cool down, you know, once you've got... Once you've got nothing on, what are you going to do? You know, you, you can't take your skin off. You know? <laughs> no, it's not a long-term solution. No, it's not a long-term solution. <laughs> so, yeah, and it's funny because every second person in Geeston is either from Queensland or Western Australia. There's a lot of climate refugees here, a lot. Well, I was uh, born in Perth. I went there for Christmas. It had two heat waves at the time I was there, and I was wondering, is it in Perth that's, going to be the first place in Australia that has a COVID outbreak and a bushfire at the same time? And how does that play out? And it did. So, you know, this is Post Growth Australia podcast and uh, I've, I've seen your stuff on social media and the blog. Um, you don't like growth very much. So <laughs> my question for you is how do you personally define growth? What is it about growth? And I know it's an obvious question for us that, that, that you know concerns you or you don't like about it 
in my lifetime, which is you know nearly seven decades now, I have seen so much change. You know, when I first arrived in Australia in 1963, there were 11 million people here. Now there's 25. So Australia's population has more than doubled. And you could see it, like areas that were, used to be covered in farmland, and now they're, they're covered in houses. Um, even, like even here, since I've been here, there's been houses built. The last place, when we were at Koran, when we bought our land in Koran, you could see three houses from our block. When we left, every block of land was covered with a house. There was a house every, houses everywhere. They're beautiful looking houses, though. No, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> with, with, a, with a high shelf Don't life. get me going about the housing stock. I think we, we build such absolutely monstrous houses in Australia. And they're all energy-hungry houses. Um, Glorified tents worth mm, at least a million dollars. Mm, bargain. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, growth. <laughs> growth. Well, the way I see it, because we're constantly brainwashed by the media and the government you know, that we... We have to have growth, jobs and growth. That's what we have to have. And nobody, no one asks why. And the reason I've come to the conclusion is that growth is only necessary so that people can repay their debts. There's no other reason for growth. Growth absolutely does not improve your quality of life at all. And we've proven that because you know, we've actually, we've been downsizing now for about 25 years. And also, we've taken advantage of downsizing so that we don't have to work because we were off the grid as far as water and sewage was concerned. So we had no water bills, no sewage bills, no electricity bills. And every time we did this, we needed less and less and less money. We were getting more and more money from selling energy to the grid until we, at once, eventually we were making $2,000 a year. You know, we were growing our own food. Um, we, just, we hardly needed any money at all. And when you decrease your, your resource consumption, when you degrow, you need far less money, a lot less stuff. So we, we hardly do any driving now because we don't have to go anywhere. We live at our own pace. You know, we do what we want, when we want, uh, which beats the hell out of working for wages. Sounds horrible. Oh, it's, it is. It's, <laughs> you know. well, why don't you think the rest of society has uh, caught on. I know you touched on this and it made me think like it, it's obvious why um, the major political parties and the um, oligarchs that uh, give them political donations <laughs> want the growth machine to keep going. But it's, I find it quite surprising that uh, many on the left and including um, the environmental political parties don't see growth as a problem but see specifically fossil fuels as a problem now i know you've had some political experience mm. in the past as have we all i know you still dialogue with uh, people from the greens so what what's been your experience in kind of communicating uh, degrowth and post-growth to the left and environmentalists, and particularly those on the political spectrum? Well, basically, they just don't get it. See, what you've got to realise too is that if everyone lived like us, the economy would completely collapse because the economy relies on the throughput of money. Um, so unless you spend, like you have to earn money by, by working at a job, then that money you earn, you spend it, and that's what the GDP is. Most single people could never live on $700 a fortnight, let alone a couple. 
but it's because of the way we do things. Now, I've, I've been pushing energy efficiency for a very long time now. There's one of the widely read things on my blog is, is about energy efficiency because I, I know all sorts of tricks where you can reduce your energy down to so, so such small amounts. It's, it's mind-boggling, literally. Everything today is about money. So people put panels on their roofs. It's all about money, not about anything else. And, and the money that they save, what do they do with it? They go on overseas holidays. One of the things that I naively couldn't get my head around for a while is how, how many people actually fly around everywhere and just take it for granted, like, I'm entitled to fly. And people, and people go on about, oh, you know, we have to save greenhouse emissions. Well, you know what? The first thing you do is you stop flying. But they don't because it doesn't suit them. Now, about the Greens, about 25 years ago now, probably, I joined the Greens. It was one day I was driving past the Greens office in Brisbane. And I thought, right, that's it, I'm going to join. I stood for the Greens in, in Queensland uh, in, in, a, in a fairly important by-election in Brisbane called the Ryan by-election. Uh, Bob Brown came to train me at campaigning, and he came to our house after the election to celebrate our 6%. <laughs> Which and, would probably and, be and very is, good is, at that time. Well, yeah, because it went up from 4% to 6%. So I, I got a 50% increase in green votes. You know, it's like, well done, Mike. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? And like, 6% is like terrible. He didn't come up by convoy, did he? <laughs> no, he flew. Oh, he flew. <laughs> Everybody flies. The Greens are into this, this Green New Deal. You know, they, they all want to go 100% renewable, blah, blah, blah. They've got this firm belief that we could just go 100% renewable energy and still drive around in electric cars. Some people believe you can, you can actually fly around in electric aeroplanes. I mean, and that's complete madness. They really think that we can live on renewable energy and, and keep going the way we are. Okay, the reason that the Green New Deal and all that renewable energy stuff is never going to happen is entirely down to limits to growth. Now, degrowth is coming whether you like it or not. Aww. <laughs> and, and that's that's because of limits. But I remember hearing in my when I was twenty twenty five. I remember hearing about the Club of Rome's limits to growth report. What the Club of Rome report said was that before the middle of this century, so before twenty fifty, we would run out of resources to allow us to keep everything going: population growth, resource use, pollution, i.e., the greenhouse effect. All of that stuff is exactly on track to follow the standard uh, scenario. By 2050, the, the, that standard scenario predicts that the world population will be around half what it is today. Now, that, that's a staggering shrinkage. Like, you know, we're talking about nearly 4 billion people disappearing off the planet of the Earth, and 4 billion left is still way too many, and we simply will not have enough resources to build all the solar panels and wind turbines and electric cars that the green lobby you know, so, so cheerfully believes in. It's just, it's, it's just not possible. The chief scientist for the British government, he's got some sort of title like that. He's told the British government that there are not enough resources on the whole planet for just Britain to switch from internal combustion engines to electric cars. Bugger. Mm. Yeah, bugger. <laughs> That's just Britain. All this talk about replacing all the cars on the planet with electric cars is just complete bullshit. It just can't be done. 60% of all the emissions that a car generates over its lifetime come from manufacturing the car. So when you drive the car out of the showroom, 
60% of all its emissions have already gone up into the air. So much more energy is embedded in the creation of the thing than running the thing. So, you know, of course, um, with the Green New Deal, it may have an effect on how the energy is produced to run the things, um, but it won't do a lot to solve the problem of making all the things mm. for an increasing population of people who want to consume more and more. And also, as soon as you buy an electric car, you're, you're, you're contributing to growth, which, which is the problem. You know, as soon as you get a job, you start earning money. What do you do with the money? You spend it and you consume stuff that you don't need to impress people you don't like. I, I, you know, like there is no way known that I'm ever going to buy an electric car. It's just not going to happen. And people say, oh, but you could charge it up using your solar power. I said, yeah, well, that's all very well, but I could only do it in summertime. <laughs> <laughs> just don't drive so, in winter. No, don't drive in winter. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the Club of Rome, one of sustainable population Australia's patrons. Professor Ian Lowe, I, I think was... I know Ian personally, actually. Fantastic. He was involved in the Club of Rome. Um, this leads me to a, a thing you raised about the Greens before. So um, they focus on renewables in order because adjusting from a certain comfortable way of life is mm. incredibly difficult and hard to face. I get that. And yet when you um, raise population, the arguments from many in the environmental left, including the Greens, is one of consumption and wealth equity and how privileged we are in the West. So, you know, when we're having this discussion, that there seems to be a cognitive dissonance of not being able to let go of way of life and yet using that as lever in order to not discuss another, you know, contentious yet critical issue, which is population. Um, where do you see um, population within the degrowth movement, which is a contentious issue in a degrowth movement as well, actually? So, okay. Well, to begin with, I think the Greens, if they all said, we, we all have to live like Mike Stass, they would overnight lose all their votes. No one would no one would vote for a party that says you can only have one child, you can't put petrol in your car, um, you, you, you have to live on 100% solar energy, and if the sun doesn't come out, well, that's tough luck. As it is, they're struggling to get votes with, with the policies that they have now. When I was with the Greens, I stood in a couple of state elections where I got 16% of the vote, and that, and that was outstanding in those days. It's, in fact, very few people who stand in elections for the Greens now get... That many votes. It's outstanding now. I was just going to say, yeah. yeah. Um, but even then, it, it's it's not enough. I mean, unless you get fifty percent of the vote, you're not going to get anywhere anyway. So there's they will never they will never gain power in inverted commas by pushing all this stuff. Um, and in any case, it's too late. See, if we were seriously going to be doing any of this, we should have done it forty years ago when the Club of Rome said to do it. If in 1972, everyone looked at the Club of Rome and said, "Ah, oh, yeah, this is really important stuff." We've got to change the way we do everything. Stop growing, go to, go to renewable energy, you know, because back then we still had heaps of resources. But now we, we're right up against limits to growth. Two years ago was peak all oil. Now, 2008 was peak conventional oil. 2018 was peak all oils, including the, the uh, non-conventional oils. The, at, the, at the current depletion, de, de, uh, depletion rate, 
by 2030, we will only have half the liquid fuels available to us today. Anyone who's got an SUV, you know, they're stuffed. And flying, I mean, flying's taken a huge hit with the COVID. I don't think that flying is ever going to come back the way it was before COVID. I think a whole lot of airlines are going to go broke. And, and the price of fuel is, you know, one expert I've been following is saying that the price of oil is going to go up to maybe $100 a barrel by the end of the year. That means the price of fuel is going to go up, the price of flying is going to go up. And everyone's in so much debt, they won't be able to afford to go flying. And the whole economy is just going to slowly grind to a halt until I reckon 2030 is collapse time. And that's what I've been saying for over 10 years on my blog. I, I said 2020 was crunch time, and I never even predicted the, uh, the, the, the pandemic, but uh, boy, was I ever right with that. But Australia's got no oil left. So we, you know, we've been importing 95% of all our liquid fuels. The era of the car is over. So I guess in these uh, precarious times, it's perhaps not a great idea to double Australia's population in under 30 years by oh. making more car dependence suburbia or more grid dependence. It's, it's more than that because it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Population growth is on the cusp of being finished. I reckon within five to 10 years maximum, um, pop global population is going to start shrinking and it's going to start shrinking for for several reasons. One is the oil, because you know 90% of the calories that you eat and the food you buy in supermarkets comes from oil. If the farmers can't drive their tractors around as much as they used to and spray all the petrochemicals on their, on their crops, then less food is going to be produced. Climate change is also affecting crops already. So you know, like last year we had this unbelievable drought and the bushfires and stuff, and our wheat, our wheat crop was down by 50% or something. And then, and then when there isn't a drought, there's a flood. So all the wheat rots on the ground. So that there are all sorts of things pointing to food production going down. Um, even the UN, the UN's put out a few statements over the last six months that they're worried that food production globally is going to start going down. Now we waste a lot of food, there's no doubt about that. Um, so there's, there's room to maneuver there. But the thing is, it's, it's just the thin edge of the wedge. So I think between peak oil and the food production and climate change and all that, I think population is, go is going to start shrinking. So there's, there's people everywhere now who are putting off having children completely as well. They've decided that this is a terrible time to have children and they're perfectly right. Um, I'm one of those. Yeah, well, well you know, I, anyway. my wife's not here to defend herself. But I, <laughs> I didn't want to have children. You know, we, we, we were married for 10 years before we had children because I kept putting it off and putting it off because I've, I've been aware of population growth for a long time. And I, uh, actually, the real funny thing is I said to her, all right, we'll have one. So what does she do? She has twins. <laughs> Got away in the end. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah she's, she's too clever for me. <laughs> Collapse is uh, happening. <laughs> um, collapse is it's on actually, the it's way. Actually, it's actually it's, been happening for some time. Um, populations are going to plummet. Um, what can we do uh, other than eat our neighbours? I think I think you need to become food self-sufficient, um, among other things. But growing your own food is really important because if you're relying on the supermarkets for your food supply, then you know, you're going to be in real trouble when, when the trucks stop. Now, all the food in supermarkets delivered by diesel trucks. People just have no understanding of what's going on because a lot of Americans think that they're energy independent now. Well, it's complete bullshit. 
95% of the oil that's fracked in America is exported because it's no good to America. So what, are they, what they do is they import diesel fuel or oil from somewhere else that can be mixed with their oil to make diesel fuel, but, but they do not have, they are, they are no, nowhere near self-sufficient in the stuff that's needed to make diesel. Now, the world runs on diesel. All the earth-moving machinery, all the mining machinery, even aeroplanes. I mean, you know, aeroplanes run on jet fuel, but jet fuel and diesel are actually very, very similar kind of fuels. And all the trucks and the diesel trains, the ships, all of those things, all those things that move everything around the planet that we consume, some of us consume more than others, uh, all rely on diesel. And there's going to be diesel shortages before any other kind of liquid fuel. So there'll be probably enough petrol to go around, but diesel is going to be um, the primary problem. And, and as a result, the shipping industry is, is degrowing. You know, I was reading the Mercury uh, the other day, um, and they're planning cruises again in 2022 and 2023, and they're offering deals. But I thought, oh, uh, <laughs> you're a bit optimistic for the future there. Really. Yeah, see, people who write articles like that have no understanding of what's actually going on. Giving the cruise industry diesel you know, to move tourists around instead of giving diesel to ships that move food around is ridiculous. You know, it's much more important that we keep people fed by moving food around than it is by moving tourists around. And see, I think articles like that come out as hopium. Mm. You know, people read this stuff and it stops them from worrying about what's really going on and, and, changing, and changing their lifestyles. Because people who don't know what's going on have no reason to change their lifestyles. And all, all this bullshit about, oh, we're going to go 100% renewable energy, blah, blah, blah. All of that. And people believe it. I mean, I get it all the time. But I read it in the paper the other day. I said, Look, it's not true. It can't be done. And then, oh, you're just climate denial. You're a doomer. You're a doomer. Yeah. yeah mm. I, get all, I get all of that. Mm. Um, but I've been studying this for 20 years. And, and I reckon I know my stuff. I've seen the numbers. And they just do not add up. Michael, thank you so much for your time in uh, showing me your place. It's been great to do an interview on site and for sharing your wisdoms and thoughts. If people are keen to uh, follow you and keep up and date with uh, more of your wisdom, where can they go and what can they do? Today I opened an account with MeWe and I strongly urge people to switch from Facebook to MeWe. Um, and then of course I've got my blog which is called Damn The Matrix. So all you have to do is just Google Damn the Matrix and you'll find it. And there's, there's a little bubble, like a cloud of titles of things that I write about. And so that if you, if you click on Tasmania Project, it'll tell you about all the things that I've been doing here. And then there's information about peak oil, there's information about collapse, there's information about limits to growth, climate change, all kinds of things. Uh, population is one of the titles, that one of the headings that, that's in there as well. Um, Fantastic. Well, good luck in your endeavours. And I, I suppose in these trying times, uh, these very interesting times, mm. well, uh, good luck to us all. Yes. Well, you should make your own luck. <laughs> A fantastic parting word there. Thank you, Michael. 
You are listening to Postgrowth Australia podcast. I have just interviewed Michael Stass, founder of the Down the Matrix blog. I will provide links to the blog in the description. We also heard a sound excerpt from Sustainable Population Australia's patron, Professor Ian Lowe, from the Meet the Patrons video series that I did for SPA, link provided. You've also heard the track Epiprimate from former Perth band Hatersburg. I look forward to sharing two more Tasmanian perspective interviews in the next episode with Caroline Smith and Kirk Hall. I stumbled across the metadata for one of the platforms for PGAP Listen Notes, and apparently PGAP is in the top 10% of performing podcasts on that site. So thank you all so much for supporting this podcast and getting it thus far. I could not have done it without you. Uh, would you like PGAP to go further and share the post-growth gospel to the wider world? Rate and review PGAP, share far and wide, word of mouth is still a powerful tool, or send us a message with your thoughts. Until next time, until then.